Welcome, folks, to the December edition of the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. So last month, we had a discussion on predator control, specifically those methods that are non-lethal. And as promised, we're following that up this month with a second part to that series. We'll be covering lethal predator control methods this time. Uh, there is no denying that lethal predator control has been foundational to the feasibility of sheep production in the U.S. throughout history. Uh, despite a number of challenges regarding use of these tools, many sheep producers across the country still rely on their ability to remove problem predators, even if they're also using other methods to curb this issue, such as guardian dogs. So as regulations, technology, and methods for lethal control continue to evolve, it can be tough to keep up with the latest techniques and laws. Uh, so for our discussion today, we went out and found just the person to provide us with all those details. Uh, so I'm excited to introduce Mike Bodenchuk, who's the director of Texas Wildlife Services with the USDA. Hello, Mike. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, before we get started, I, you know, I gave you a, a brief introduction, but would you mind giving our listeners just a little more information about your background and then also uh, some background about wildlife services and, and kind of what they provide producers? Sure. Um, I began working with predators and predation ID back in the 70s when I was in college in New Mexico, working on a deer study for the New Mexico Game and Fish Department. Predators were killing radio collared deer fawns and we had to decide which ones were responsible and what circumstances under that, that occurred under. I also worked for the New Mexico Department of Agriculture for four years on predator and range issues. I worked in the private sector here in Texas managing ranches, uh, about six years of that. Also ranches in New Mexico for both wildlife and livestock. And then started my career with wildlife services back in 1990. I worked for Wildlife Services in Mississippi, South Dakota and Nebraska, Utah. I spent 13 years in Utah, 10 years there as the state director. And I've been back in Texas now for 14 years as the state director for the cooperative program here. Wildlife Services as an agency has uh, got about a 105 year history. We, we started back in 1915 we've been bounced back and forth from the Bureau of Biological Survey to the Fish and Wildlife Service and now in 1986 we were transferred back to USDA. Our mission is to provide federal leadership in managing human wildlife conflicts. We protect agriculture and crops, provide support for the management of wildlife rabies when it spills over into wildlife hosts, we do beaver management in some states uh, to protect natural resources and agriculture, and we make aviation safer by reducing wildlife at airports. Uh, recently, we've been assigned to the task of dealing with the nation's feral hog program, and that and that's a that's quite yeah. Um, and of course, we we've done livestock protection from predators throughout the whole 105 years of the agency. Yes, very much. Yeah, unsung heroes, very much to, to those of us in, in the sheep industry. So uh, thank you. And, and you have a wealth of knowledge and background. You know, you and I are recording this podcast here in Texas, uh, but our listeners across the nation, and you have quite a bit of experience at a number of different states and, and regions. So really looking forward to our, our discussion today. Uh, before, again, before we dive too deep into some details, um, I kind of want to start with a, a broad question to open it up. 
Um, and this may be intuitive, but maybe not. Uh, can you define for us what exactly lethal predator control is and what is the goal in most lethal predator control situations? Well, the lethal removal of predators when it's necessary is part of an integrated predation management program. We don't control predators. That old term of predator control, we don't use anymore. We try to control predation. Right. And there's a big difference in that. Uh, if we're talking about native predators, we recognize that they play a role in the ecosystem. We intentionally try to minimize the impact on their populations while still meeting the goal of reducing damage to livestock. If that can be done effectively with non-lethal methods, then that's absolutely preferred. But sometimes additional methods, non-lethal methods, aren't practical or cost-effective, or they wouldn't be expected to resolve the issues. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want to put uh, one more guard dog in a herd that's already got four guard dogs and expect that to make the difference. Right. In those instances, lethal removal may be warranted. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and, you know, predation for those of us in the, in the sheep industry is often synonymous with coyote kills. But, uh, you know, there's, there's really a, a number of predators that uh, can affect us. And so um, would you mind just giving us a bit of a rundown of what are the most common predators that affect uh, the sheep and goat industry? Certainly. Coyotes are the number one predator of sheep and lambs, as well as being the number one predator of calves and goats. Um, they're far and ahead above everything else nationwide and probably regionally everywhere. Feral or free-roaming dogs are also a pretty big, important predator. Uh, mountain lions in the West, bears, bobcats, and foxes are the main predators that producers have to deal with. Um, locally, you can find other predators such as eagles, ravens, black vultures is on an increasing basis, feral hogs for those of us in Texas and Oklahoma, and, and for a few producers, even wolves are predators, but the main ones are are coyotes, mountain lions, bears, bobcats, and foxes. Sure. And, you know, I hate to put you on the spot, but do you have any sort of rough estimations on, on percentages of kills by those predator types uh, on, on sheep and goats? Sure, I do. We, we cooperate with the National Ag Statistics Service, NAS, to do inventories on that. And, and the most recent data comes from 2014. They're going to do another, publish another study soon. Uh, NAS shows about 1.8 of the adult sheep inventory was less, lost to predators and about 3.9% of the lamb crop. Those losses were valued at just over $32.5 million. Coyotes are responsible for more than half of that. 54% of the NAS reported losses were to coyotes, 21% to feral dogs. Mountain lions and bears were responsible for just about 5% each, but obviously nationwide, that 5% was all concentrated in the West for lions. Right. Uh, and bobcats and foxes, just about 1% each. So, Locally, that can change quite a bit. In the Midwest, you know, foxes may be a much bigger predator and no bears at all. Right. But uh, those were the national numbers. The remaining 13% were just the miscellaneous predators like vultures and ravens and eagles and feral hogs. So, so for the most part, it's, it's those big four or five predators. There. Right. Great. 
Okay, and, and again, within the context of the, the sheep industry, uh, what are some of historically the lethal control tools that have been available for use? Well, um, traditionally we, we use uh, foothold traps, cable restraints, which is both foot and neck snares, M44s. We can use dogs, which include hounds for bears and lions, as well as decoy dogs for the territorial coyotes. Calling and shooting, aerial shooting, that's helicopter and fixed wing if the, if the terrain's correct. Mm -hmm. Den removal, M44s, and livestock protection collars. Some of these methods, like traps, snares, and hounds, can also be used as non-lethal tools if you're talking about relocation or, or capturing them and darting them. So. Right. And as, as far as regulations go, how has that limited the tools that have, have been maybe were in place 50 years ago versus what is available for use today? Well, 50 years ago, this program under the Fish and Wildlife Service used large 1080 bait stations for population level reductions. And that method, all predecessors actually, were banned uh, back on January 1st of 1972. So we're right at the, about the, almost the 50th anniversary of that, the 49th anniversary of that. That 50 year was not arbitrary that I picked that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, uh, the old coyote getter, which was the predecessor to the M44, was banned at the same time. So M44s and the livestock protection collars have been developed since that time. M44s were reintroduced into the program in the mid-1970s and livestock protection collars in the early 1980s. Aerial shooting, which we do now pretty regularly, was seldom used in the 1970s, but its use was actually increased with additional funding when the predicides were banned. So, so we aerial gun much more now than we did back 50 years ago. Sure. And for some of our listeners who are maybe unfamiliar with what an M44 is, can you uh, give us a, a quick review of what, what that device is? The M44 is a spring-loaded ejector that requires an upward pull for it to be activated. The upward pull is, is very typical of coyotes or canines and almost non-existent for other predators. And so it's very, very selective um, towards the canine family, foxes and coyotes and feral dogs. Um, it contains a one gram capsule of sodium cyanide when that mixes with moisture in the coyote's mouth and that forms a gas that prevents the cellular absorption of oxygen. The animal literally does not get oxygen to the brain and dies very quickly. Um, it, again, its use was reinstated back in the 1970s. It's, it's very safe because it requires that upward pull. Um, and, and much safer than the old coyote getter, which actually used a, a 38 special shell that fired cyanide. Right. Okay. Great. Thank you. Um, so we, you know, we talked about maybe what was available historically. Do you see any new tactics or tools or devices or, or whatever that maybe is potentially going to become available here in the future? There's been a lot of research on the development of non-lethal tools like flattery and guard dogs, but not so much on leth new lethal tools, if we could. Um, we see the opportunity to develop new toxicants for existing tools like the M44 or the livestock protection collar. Australians are using a chemical called PAP in the M44 device. Um, 
because it has an antidote for it and takes a, a longer time for the the chemical to work. So it it's safer for non-target animals, if you will, for dogs that might pull it. Uh, what research has been done is also included making our existing tools more effective, selective, or, or humane. We're looking at things like how do we target territorial pairs of coyotes rather than targeting just any old coyote with a foothold trap. So there's there's research on existing tools getting better, but not necessarily the development of new tools. Sure. And I think that, you know, kind of the next question that leads very much into it, um, you know, when it comes to trapping, snaring, shooting, or the use of these tools, what are some potential drawbacks? And, well, you know, I know a lot of this research is trying to address these drawbacks. So what, what exactly are they trying to solve? What's the problem? Well, these tools are highly selective in the hands of trained people. Uh, the EPA data shows the M44s are over 98% selective. It's always that other 2% that we have concerns about. Sure. Uh, some of them obviously can't be used when guard dogs are present. We, we can't co uh, use the same tools at the same time in the same space because of the conflicts with other methods. Exposure to pets is always something that continue, that will be a problem, and, and we want to make that better and safer. On private lands, there's fewer issues than on public lands because the landowner can control who they allow onto the property. Wildlife Service is always working to reduce those risks. As an example, in Utah, we used aerial gun, gunning in the high mountain areas in the winter when nobody was around to target specifically the, tar the territorial pairs that are going to be on those sheep allotments. We reduced losses and we need reduced the need to put out traps up on national forest land in the summer later on when visitors would be present. So some of these techniques are specifically designed to reduce some of that uh, drawback. Right. Okay. And you said, you know, these tools are, are best in the hands of, of professionals. So I want to go back to you know, the role of wildlife services of if a producer is having a problem, and I know this varies by region, but if a producer is having problems, do they just contact wildlife services? And then what are, you know, what is it, what happens from there? What, what do you guys do? How do you interact with that producer? Um, do you go to their property? You know, just kind of, if you could lay that out for us. Well, you know, for a new producer that hasn't worked with wildlife services, somebody coming out on the land, we provide a lot of information regarding predation risks and mitigations, how to, how to build fences that are more or less predator resistant. Um, but we're not alone in that regard. Industry groups such as ASI, extension specialists, wildlife agencies all provide information depending on the state and the predator. Um, it's up to the livestock producer to select which non-lethal methods they can incorporate in their option, operation. Most of them have one or more non-lethal methods in place. I, I used to joke in Utah that a sheep herder with a gun was a non-lethal method. They never <laughs> seemed to hit anything. But every sheep band out there had herders that were out there as, as a deterrent to predation. Right. Wildlife Services works with livestock producers to prevent that predation. Where in Texas here, we have sheep that stay in the same pastures year round. So we often will snare the fence in order to prevent coyotes from coming off the neighbors and killing livestock. In states with mountain lions, wolves, or bears, preventive control is not an option. So we're required or requested to get on site and perform that forensic investigation to determine the cause of death 
before we initiate any kind of action. We want to make sure that we know what it is that killed the animal before we start. For states with a compensation program, many of the Western states will actually compensate the producer for confirmed losses. We're also the boots on the ground that does that compensation confirmation. So, so we, we get all of these steps before we actually get out there and start putting a trap in the ground or a snare in the fence or something else. This is part of the service that Wildlife Services does. From there, it depends on what the problem is and how what methods are going to be selected and what our timing and, and spatial use of the, the land is going to be. Absolutely. And, and we covered it, you know, a lot of your time, at least for sheep producers, is going to be dealing with coyotes. Are, are coyotes the, the most problematic? Or are they the toughest predator to, to control or, or is that maybe not the case? You know, wolves can be tough because they surplus kill sheep. So you don't know they're around and then all of a sudden you wake up and there's 30 or 40 dead ones. Right. The same with mountain lions, same with bears. Um, often these larger predators will eat so much that they also don't come back to the area. So, so the ability to target the offending individual is lost. You just don't know where they go. Right. Um, there's nothing tougher than a trap-shy coyote or a call-shy coyote, but a good trapper, a lucky aircraft team might be able to catch up with them. This is going to sound funny to most producers, but here in Texas, feral hogs are a real problem. Yeah. It's easy to kill feral hogs. We go out there and do it every day in Texas, but there's so many of them here, it's impossible to get them all. Yeah. I've said that the only good thing I can think of about a feral hog is they make a coyote problem look easier. <laughs> they make yeah. something solvable. So that's that's true, well, and that's uh, a good point. Now, you know, you Mike, you've been around a while. You've been in the agency for quite a while and across the country. How, in your opinion, has predation on sheep and goats changed over time, uh, both regarding the the type of predators that have maybe been problematic and also the pressure level that those predators have put on the industry? In my career, the number of predators has increased everywhere. There's more coyotes alive today than there were, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Um, the number of sheep operations has also declined. In the old days, all your neighbors had sheep and everyone was vigilant. So there was a better network of people watching out for predation. Larger predators like bears and lions have increased two or three fold over the over my career. You know, we've got more lions in, in Texas now than we had 100 years ago. And there are areas in the West that have wolves that didn't have them for two generations of people. So, so we've got an abundance of predators and a reducing number of sheep operations. Here in Texas over the past decade, we've also seen a shift from wool sheep to hair sheep. There's a lot of reasons for that, but one of them is that hair sheep have more frequent breeding, producing more lambs per year, if you will. And on the predation management side, that often means that we're seeing lambs born throughout the year, sometimes at time of peak predator abundance. Fall lambing when we have tons of black vultures around, for example, can be an, uh, just a nightmare. So how has the influx uh, or influx of, of landowners that, that don't produce sheep or, or don't ranch just in general, how has that changed wildlife services and, and your ability to get out there and, and control predators lethally? Well, it hasn't been for the better. I, we've got neighbors who 
aren't interested in production agriculture, especially here in Texas where it's a private land state. They bought the ranch for recreation. Yeah. And often they're interested in all forms of wildlife. They want to keep the feral hogs around. They want to keep the coyotes around because they like hearing them. Yeah. And that's a problem then. Um, I, I liken this to a sheep ranch being like a life raft in a sea of coyotes. And, and you can, as long as you stay in the life raft, you can stay safe. But, yeah. but it, it, there's a lot of danger out there. And, and we're working the edges of these properties in order to provide protection to the landowner. Right. There's just a, so many spots where those predators can go and, and basically, you know, a safe haven almost. Uh, so we talked about it a little bit, but the use of, of guardian dogs and, and other tactics that fall under the, the non-lethal category are, are quite common now in, in the sheep industry. Um, in your opinion, though, when is the right time when you're working with a producer to step in and use lethal control, even if those non-lethal methods are, are in place? Well, obviously, if the non-lethal methods are working, you don't need lethal management. I don't need to spend government dollars chasing something down, and, and the producer doesn't need to have that kind of diversion going on while they're there. Mm -hmm. If you're experiencing unacceptable losses, with even with the non-lethal in place, then you need to consider something else, and that could include lethal removal of specific predators. Right. Um, and, and so compared to a guardian animal that is a deterrent to that predator, how does the lethal removal of a predator, specifically a coyote, change kind of the, the territories and the behavior of those other coyotes uh, as far as now that there's a, a void in that territory? Well, I think with dogs, we see that predators don't change their overall territories much, but they adjust their time use within the territories mm -hmm. to avoid being detected by the dogs. Some predators like coyotes patrol their territory and they're likely to be detected while other predators like a lion may sneak in there and they're not detected until they've already grabbed a sheep. Lethal management like the dogs doesn't change the territory much either, but a territory may go vacant for a short period of time. During that short period of time, transient coyotes might find the location more favorable because there's not a territorial male there trying to chase them out of the territory. Um, those transients, though, don't have litters to raise. They're not inclined to kill livestock at near the, the same rate as the territory holders. And so having them temporarily fill the space usually isn't that problematic. Right. And, and I know that it's probably a really hard question in, to answer, but how long does it take for a, a territory to get reestablished as far as you know, a, a territorial male filling that, that location? There are actually some studies out there in, in California, and the average time to reoccupation by a pair was about 30 days. Okay, it's about not very long. Yeah. So that doesn't mean that lethal removal was a failure or that it only had a temporary effect. We're talking about the behavior of the coyote in, in territoriality rather than the behavior towards killing livestock. Now, the coyotes that take the, the place of the removed pair are often two-year-olds. And if done at the right time of the year, those coyotes won't breed until the next breeding season and losses are greatly reduced. Earlier, I mentioned that we did winter aerial shooting of coyotes in the high mountains. We removed territorial coyotes in January, February, and March. And even though they were replaced when, when the snow left and the other coyotes came back up the mountain, those replacements didn't breed that year. We reduced livestock loss by 50%. And we also reduced the time it takes to respond when losses did occur by 19 man days. 
So removing the territorial pairs, even though it didn't even change coyote abundance, changed the number of losses significantly. Absolutely. Those are really dramatic decreases. Uh, so, you know, obviously timing of that lethal control and, and employment of, of that use throughout the year um, is important. But would you also say that a, a combination approach, lethal and non-lethal, is probably the, the most effective? Well, I, you know, again, I wouldn't do lethal management unless we need to. Yeah. But for most of our customers, we have multi-generational experience that shows that lethal and non-lethal are both necessary to provide the level of protection that operation needs. Right. So we talked coyotes, but two predators of, of sheep and goats that are really challenging to control uh, with non-lethal methods are uh, domestic dogs or, or town dogs and then also birds of prey. Um, can you discuss how, uh, well, you know, what options are maybe available for lethal control of, of those two uh, areas? Well, truly feral dogs, not the free-roaming pet kinds, but yeah. truly feral dogs are a real problem because they have no regular food source. But their domestic ancestry includes centuries of breeding for hunting, so they're really good at going out there and finding them. Raptors, particularly vultures, are increasing in both range and abundance, and they can be especially problematic. I would argue that some of the problems can be solved with non-lethal methods, but they might involve capture non-lethal methods. We experienced eagle problems when I was in South Dakota and Nebraska and in Utah as well, and most of those problems involved migrating birds that were approaching their first birthday as they went north. Um, these birds had been abandoned by their parents on the winter range and they were struggling their way back north. They're starving on their way back north. They're having to catch their own prey for the first time in their lives and they find a, a range lambing band up there and they can inflict tremendous damage up there. We're able to trap and relocate eagles under permits from the Fish and Wildlife Service and, and we banded these birds. None the depredation site. So as a non-lethal method, you know, trap and relocate was, was appropriate for eagles. Vultures, on the other hand, aren't eagles. They don't have the same protection. They're expanding in their habitat. They're in their range. Lethal methods for black vultures when they start hitting seasonal lambing operation. Um, even then, though, we might use the carcasses of the birds that we remove to hang up in trees as effigies to haze off other black vultures to keep them away from the area. So, so some combination of lethal and non-lethal is even necessary there. Okay. I, I know, you know for here in, in Texas, black-headed vultures and other areas can be very, very challenging. Okay, so this might be a broad question, but is there new research that has been done in the area of predator control that you're aware of? Well, the, the National Wildlife Research Center has done a ton of research over the years on predation management. It's kind of funny how the direction of research follows the interest of whoever's in charge of the research. Uh, we looked at a number of attractants, some repellents. We looked at aversive food conditioning and some supplemental feeding. I actually tried to supplemental feed bears to keep them away from sheep herds. Uh, we looked at a host of non-lethal methods, including guard llamas, guard dogs, and fladry, and even had a multi-year study on the sheep-killing behavior of surgically sterilized coyotes. 
Uh, that was designed to collect data on whether or not it was worth going after a chemically, chemical sterilization method. For about a decade, there was also interest on predation management for wildlife protection. And the role of predator management for livestock as it affects wildlife is removing coyotes to protect sheep, also beneficial to mule deer herds in the same areas. Um, we've done predator removal studies to protect mule deer, bighorns, pronghorns, shorebirds, nesting waterfowl, and a number of endangered species. Everything we know about predator management for wildlife protection comes from our livestock protection efforts and our research. We've got an economics unit within NWRC that has the capacity to address the economics of predation management, and they did a number of studies. Several years ago, I asked them to run a, our predator and feral hog benefits through a Texas-specific economic model to see what the actual benefit was. Obviously, we had a positive benefit cost ratio, but the interesting fact to me was that the benefits generated more state tax revenue than the state of Texas was providing to conduct the program. So we get federal funds and state funds, and the, the, the state tax on what the producers received whether they used it to buy more equipment or buy more feed was greater than what it took to run this program. That's a pretty powerful endorsement of the program. Absolutely. Wow. NWRC isn't the only entity doing predator management research. We also have collaboration with Texas A&M, Utah State University, and other, uh, other age, uh, colleges on predation research. So there's, there's some going on. Uh-huh. Very regionally specific, I would imagine. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, we touched on it just a, a little bit ago, but you know, another predator we deal with here in Texas, Oklahoma, the, the southern states um, that's sort of new, if you may, um, is, is feral hogs. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, how hogs differ from native predators of sheep and goats and, and what are the methods that are most effective for controlling them? Feral hogs are a perfect storm when it comes to human-wildlife conflict. There's no part of the environment they don't destroy. I've called them an environmental train wreck, literally one thing slamming into another, into another. They're an efficient predator of newborn, pasture-born lambs and kid goats. They can sniff them out. They occupy the same habitat, feed, drink at the same waters. And when they eat one, there's absolutely nothing left to confirm the loss. So you just don't have a kid where you had one yesterday. They also occur in large numbers here in Texas. So they're hard to manage when you've got that many of them. In Texas, we rely on aerial shooting for a lot of our livestock predation problems. Our sheep and goat country is more or less open and aerial shooting is immediate. We can be on the spot quickly. We still use all the other tools available to us, snares, corral traps, thermal shooting at night, but aerial is the cheapest method for us on a per hog removed basis. Part of that's because we remove so many at once. If you're killing 60 or 70 an hour, it's pretty cheap on a per hog basis. In states with more cover or fewer hogs, shooting or trapping may be more cost effective. Sure. And so what does the future hold for, for hog control? What about toxicants? Is, is that something that's going to come down the pike? Yeah, we're working with researchers in Australia to develop a humane toxicant that landowners will be able to use to control hogs. The current methods that we've got, you know, aerial trapping, those kind of things, is limited on small properties. 
but a toxicant may be perfect in a fragmented landscape. They, they can chum the pigs into the property, give them a, a one-night dose of a toxicant, and, and have the problem solved very quickly. Right. Okay, we're just going to back up a little bit, you know, sort of switch gears. So to the general public, um, you know, lethal control remains a pretty polarizing topic. I'm, you know, certainly preaching to the choir here. Uh, what do you tell people who maybe don't um, see the necessity of, of lethal control the same way that those of us in the sheep industry or, or from your position do? We understand that people have an attract, attachment to wildlife. I, I have an attachment to wildlife. That's why I got in this business in the first place. Predator conservation has been a bright spot in the history of this country. And if we're going to have abundant predator populations, we're going to have to manage them. We can argue about thresholds and methods and timing, but the bottom line is abundant predators and abundant people have to be managed to reduce those conflicts. Sure, absolutely. Um, so you've worked quite extensively internationally, too. Uh, and sometimes as, as American producers, we get so focused on, on our own problems and the methods for solving them here. Um, is there anything that you learned maybe overseas that can potentially translate to the American producer the, here on our U.S. ranches? We worked with Australians on implementing the U.S. best management practices for trapping. They're using some of our traps now. And as we discussed, they're using the M44 device for dingoes, wild dogs, and fox work, but they're using a different chemical, which I think may be useful here. Mm -hmm. uh, we also got to see how they're using scents to attract predators to their trap sets. Um, specifically uh, some, some other canine scents that may help us target territorial animals, the ones that are doing most of the damage, rather than just non-target animals or non-territorial coyotes. In South Africa, we worked with them on a national program for predation reporting. We worked with them on trap standards. We worked with a producer there who has a bite collar, a, an actual hard collar he puts on his lambs with roofing nails sticking out of it to, to, to prevent caracals from killing those lambs. He reports that the territorial caracals probably try that collar once or twice, but then they soon learn to avoid the livestock and they're, he's better off by keeping those territorial predators in place as long as they leave his livestock alone. The collars are very interesting, but they require a lot of handling. They have to adjust them almost weekly on, on quickly growing lambs. And so they may not be applicable to large range operators, but they might be practical for some smaller flock and, and uh, people who can get their sheep up more frequently. Sure, absolutely. All right, Mike, oftentimes on, on these podcasts, we have a, a lot of conversation. There's a lot of information that, that's spilled out there, and it can be hard for our listeners to digest it all at one time. Um, can you provide our listeners with one thing that you would like them to retain from today's discussion? What's their one takeaway message? Well, lethal management is not a replacement for non-lethal management any more than non-lethal can completely replace lethal control. It takes an integrated approach like we and our cooperators practice to provide protection to your herds. Right. That's, a, that's a great final statement. Thank you very much. Uh, so that about does it 
for time for today. But uh, thank you again very much, uh, Mike, for, for joining us and, and sharing all your wisdom and, and all your experiences. I really enjoyed it, and I know our listeners did as well. Uh, speaking of you, our faithful listeners, we hope that you have a very happy holiday season. And don't forget to join us in 2021 as we continue on with our monthly editions of the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update in January. Uh, but until then, remember, eat lamb, wear wool, and keep you and your critters safe. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>